Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Testament is just riddled with marriage language and wedding language. 
Jesus himself uses wedding language when responding to critics and to Pharisees. Wedding language, marriage language, is essential to understanding Christianity. If you go to our website, if you go to the listen link, go over to topical messages over on the left-hand side of books of the Bible. If you scroll down to message, I think it's 40 and 41, that is a couple of years ago when we concentrated on the connection between traditional Jewish marriage and the return of Christ to gather his church. And the parallels are unavoidable. The language of marriage, the language of wedding, the language of groom and bridegroom permeates the New Testament. But all of it is anticipatory, looking forward to the actual wedding. The language is all bride and bridegroom, not husband and wife. In the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his wife. In fact, he says that she rebelled against him. He even says that she was an adulterous, unfaithful wife, And he uses the language, though I was a husband to them. In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a faithless wife. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride waiting for the bridegroom. Those, by the way, are serious distinctions for the folks who want to say that the church is somehow Israel or spiritual Israel or that the two ideas have been combined together, you would then have to explain how it is that the language of the relationship between Israel and God as husband and wife differs so much with the language of Christ and his church, which is groom and bridegroom. Very serious differences. Today in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, we are finally going to get to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is one of the reasons that we just sang, that the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. And I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Because we're going to talk this morning about the wedding feast, but before we do that, we're going to look at some of the examples that I have been alluding to of the New Testament language that talks bride and bridegroom so that it establishes what I have just said, that the language of the New Testament is all anticipatory of a wedding to come. But the whole time that Jesus was on the planet, he never referred to his church as his actual wife yet. And so the culmination of all of this bride-bridegroom language is found in Revelation 19, but not found anywhere before that. For instance, in Matthew 9, the disciples of John the Baptist have come to ask Jesus some questions about fasting. And he could have answered that question a variety of ways. He could have gotten all legal and doctrinal on them. He could have taken them back to the law of Moses in order to explain fasting to them. 
But the question that was posed to him is, starting at verse 14 of Matthew 9, then the disciples of John came to Jesus asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And rather than give them a big theological doctrinal answer, Jesus replied with marriage language. Jesus said to them, the attendants of the groom cannot mourn as long as the groom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What did Jesus just do? He explained that he was the bridegroom and that his disciples were his groomsmen. They were his attendants. And if you know anything about Jewish wedding tradition, typically, once you were engaged to be married, once you were betrothed to each other, the groom would go away. He would go back to his father's house. And he would build an extension on his father's house, a place where he and his bride could live. Which is why Jesus would say things like, in my father's house, there are many dwellings. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may also be. That is all wedding language. That is all marriage language. And even when explaining why it was that his disciples were not fasting, he explained it using wedding language and said, these are my groomsmen. We are celebrating together right now because I'm coming to get my bride. And since this is a celebratory time, we're not going to do mourning and fasting and afflicting our souls. And then he said, now I am going to leave because he's going to go away and prepare a place for us. And during that time, he said, then they will return to fasting until I come. So hold on to that idea that he's going to come back and get his bride because that was typical of Jewish wedding tradition. The groom could come any time, any day or night. I'm sure that the women in the room are just happy that that tradition no longer stands. The bridegroom could come unexpectedly, and she had to be ready. She had to be waiting. She and her bridesmaids had to be waiting for him. And then he would appear to take her back with him. Matthew 22, Jesus was speaking to the chief priests and the Pharisees, And at the end of Matthew 21, you read that they realized that in his condemnatory language, he was talking about them. They got it. They understood that he was talking about them. Right at the beginning of Matthew 22, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus did this a lot. He would compare something knowable to something that we couldn't comprehend, to help us understand the incomprehensible. I mean, let's be honest. There's nobody in this room who has any idea what heaven's like. Our experience, our knowledge so far, is what this world is like and what it is to be human and what it is to live in this flesh. And so Jesus had to come from heaven, and knowing heaven like the back of his hand, he was able to tell us what heaven's like. But even if he explained heaven from his eternal heavenly perspective, 
We're not going to get it. We're not going to understand the language of eternity. And so he spoke in parables where he said the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a king who held a wedding feast for his son. Okay, as soon as they heard that, they went, okay, we know what a wedding feast is. This is a time of great happiness. And if it's a king, then he's really got some money he can dole out on the wedding feast. And he's going to call people. He's going to call the high and mighty. He's a king. He's going to call the important people. He's going to call people to his wedding feast. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who held a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. And again, he sent other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went their separate ways. One to his own farm, another to his own business, and the rest seized his slaves and treated them abusively and then killed them. Okay, now remember, he's talking to the Pharisees as he says this. They're understanding the analogy he's building. Because what he's talking about is, I sent you my servants, the prophets. They came to Israel and they told you what to expect. And you were unwilling You were the faithless, erring wife. You were the rebellion. You were the people who stood against the law and would not be satisfied with me as your king. Okay, I believe that's who Jesus is referring to when he's talking about the original guests, the original chosen people, the original nation of Israel that God called to his feast, and they didn't want to do it. So then what happens at that point? They paid no attention. They went their separate ways, one to his own farm, another to his own business. The rest seized the slaves and treated them abusively and killed them. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24 happened in Jerusalem, that all the prophets that God had sent to Israel, they killed them all. So the parallels are pretty obvious. But then Jesus goes on. He doesn't just condemn them and leave them there. He says, starting in verse 7, now the king was angry, and he sent his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and he set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So go to the main roads and invite whomever you find there to come to my wedding feast. And the slaves went out into the streets And they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. He went out and found the dregs. He went out and found people on the street, people who didn't even prior know the king, people who would never be invited to the king's banquet. They're the people who end up being invited who actually show up at the king's banquet. That'd be me. Anybody else here? Yeah, we, the dregs, we, the sinners, we, look, the bad and the good. I qualify as the bad. And he invites us to his wedding feast. And then look at what happens. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And when the king came in, 
to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding garments. Okay, really, really important. If you had money and you threw a big wedding feast, it was your responsibility as the head of the feast to also provide wedding garments, appropriate clothing for everybody. When we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that at the feast, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are given fine linen, white and clean to wear. And then that white linen is identified as the righteousness of the saints. We're going to talk about that when we get there. But it's all part and parcel of all of the Jewish wedding traditions that the man giving the feast also provided the appropriate clothing. So when he sees somebody who's not wearing the appropriate clothing, he knows this is something that was not called by his servants. This is someone who was not called by his servants to the feast. He snuck in some other way. And so he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, tie his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, now Jesus spoke that whole parable to the Pharisees in order for them to understand their guilt You combine it with what's coming up in Matthew 24 and him condemning the leaders in Jerusalem for the fact that they had killed the prophets and all those that God had sent to them. And he predicts the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and not one stone's going to be left on another. So this is all part of him predicting perfectly accurately that God was going to take vengeance against the leaders of Jerusalem. But how did he do it? He could have just said, God's angry at you, and he's going to take you out. He didn't do that. He used wedding language. And he said, you were the original wife. You originally had God as your husband. And you were adulterous. You were erring. You were rebellious. And therefore, your rebellion means you're not going to be part of the wedding feast. But people like George are going to get to go to the wedding feast. Amazing. Amazing. I think we as a group all agree. I mean, amazing. People like Erica are going to go to the wedding feast. Why? Not because of anything she did. She was just walking down the street. When one of the servants of the king invited her to the feast, and she came. Do you see the gospel in that? That New Testament gospel of grace, salvation by grace through faith, it just permeates the New Testament. It permeates the teaching of Jesus, and he couched it in wedding language. Go to Matthew 25. You'll probably all be familiar with this language. This is the story of the ten virgins. Once again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like... And in describing the kingdom of heaven, he's going to use wedding language. Matthew 25, starting at verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Okay, that was very typical wedding tradition in Israel. That not only was there the bride, but there were the bridesmaids, and they collectively 
would be waiting for the return of the bridegroom because whenever he returned, he would take his wife with him back home to his father's house where he had built a place for her. And so the bridesmaids, the attendants to the bride, had to wait and watch and pay attention because the bridegroom was going to come at a time when they didn't expect him. So the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five of them were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom, the word here is tarried, it just means he took his time, he stayed away. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go ye out to meet him. And then all of the attendants of the bride, all of the virgins arose, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us from your oil, for our lamps have gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so lest there not be enough for us and you. But go you, rather, to them that sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom arrived. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterwards came the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, here's the point of his analogy, watch, therefore, because you don't know the day or the hour wherein the Son of Man is coming. So what did he just do? He took a standard Jewish wedding tradition that everybody would know. Everybody would have experienced marriages, and they would know that that is the tradition that the bridegroom is going to leave, prepare a place, and can return at any point, and you needed to be prepared. He could have just said his concluding statement. He could have just said, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. Get ready, because when I come back, you're not going to expect it, and you better be prepared. So anticipate that I'm coming back. Look forward to my return. Stay in the faith. Hold on to grace. Trust me, I'm coming. Even if it seems like a long time, notice in his story, the bridegroom stayed away a long time. That's been a couple thousand years. He knew what he was talking about. It's taking a long time. I don't know about you. I'm anxious for him to just come back. But from this parable that he told, it's obvious that he told us to be prepared, to stay ready, to anticipate his return, even if he's gone for a long time. So here again, he taught us a very important theological principle using wedding language. That's my point. Notice again that all of the wedding language that Jesus used is looking forward to a wedding. The wedding hasn't happened yet. That's why nowhere in the New Testament do you see the church referred to as the actual wife of Christ. Because that betrothal period is what we're in right now. 
but he's coming back to get us. That's why the rapture is such an important concept. In the book of John, there was a dispute between John's disciples and the Jews. They were disputing about purification because in the Old Testament law, there were a lot of purification rules. There were a lot of standards that people had to meet, and so the rabbis would start extrapolating on the purification rules and arguing about what was and was not allowable within purification. The example that I love to use as a demonstration of that was that there is still a rabbinical argument about whether you can eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. And it is determined that you can't eat that egg if the chicken worked. But if the chicken didn't work laying the egg, that's an egg you can have. Okay, so this is the kind of nitpicky little detail they're going into arguing about what's right, what's acceptable, what's pure, what's clean, what's unclean. And so starting in John 3, starting at verse 25, then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John the Baptist's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified? Okay, they're talking about Christ. He that was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, Behold, he is baptizing, and all the people are coming to him. So apparently they're trying to get John jealous. Like, hey, you know, you had a pretty good following for a while. You were drawing decent crowds, but now those people seem to be going to him. Doesn't that upset you, John? Here's John's answer. Starting at verse 27, John replied, A person can receive nothing, not even one Thing, unless it is given to him from heaven. What an important theological statement. There's nothing you have, there's nothing you know, there's nothing you own, there's no comprehension you have of spiritual things, of God and Christ. There's no way that you could read your Bible with comprehension were it not for the fact that it was given to you from heaven. You have nothing, not even one little thing, unless it was given to you from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ. But here's what I said to you. I said I have been sent ahead of him. And then look what John does. He launches into wedding language. Because, again, part of the Christian story is entrenched in the language of marriage. He who has the bride is the groom. He said that on the back of saying, I'm not the Christ. In other words, the bride, the church, belongs to Christ. John says, doesn't belong to me. I'm paving the way, preparing for him. But the church belongs to him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the friend of the groom? Okay, that's John. John says, I'm one of the groomsmen. I'm one of the attendants. I'm one of the people he sent ahead. 
so that I could cry, just like we saw with the foolish virgins. There was the cry, behold, the bridegroom comes. He's saying, I'm one of those guys. I'm one of the people that's announcing the groom who's to come. But the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. I must decrease. Now, most people know that phrase from John. He must increase. I must decrease. But notice that John couched it in wedding language and said, Christ is the groom. The bride belongs to the groom. I'm just a friend of the groom, and I'm just happy to hear from the groom. Then later in John 14, I'm just going to read two quick verses. I already mentioned it. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Okay, when he uses that language, he's using the language of wedding. Because everybody knows that the groom is betrothed to the woman he's going to marry. And then he leaves her in her father's house. And then goes and prepares a place for her in his father's house. And then he comes back and gets her, and the announcement is made. Behold, the groom comes. He returns, gets her, takes her home to his father's house. So he said, in my father's house there are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and gather you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. That's all wedding language. By the way, just an additional little comment, I love the fact that Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, would take the time to say to his followers, if it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, everything he said is so trustworthy that you can even count on him to tell you if something's not so. He tells you what the truth is, and he tells you what the truth is not. And he's very clear in telling you that salvation and relationship with him and getting to his father's house is all through him. And he's the one who does the choosing. And he's the one who chose his bride. He's the one that's coming back to get his bride. He's not coming back for everybody. Here, Micah. You're married to April, right? Are you married to Luann? No. Okay. Jennifer, are you married to Jennifer back there? No. Why not? Because you chose her. And now that you've chosen her, you're married to her. Same idea. This is why Jesus kept using marriage language. Because he was purposefully limiting those people that are going to end up in the house that he has prepared. He said, I prepare a place for you. And he's very specific about it. He prepared a place for his people. And he's coming back to get his people. And he's taking his people to his father's house. Because that's the one he chose. You get the language? People say, where do you find election in the Bible? Oh, just everywhere. It permeates the Bible. 
You probably all know Ephesians 2.25. Even Paul picked up this idea of wedding language in order to describe the relationship between Christ and his church. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so quick theological question. Who did Christ give himself up for? The church. The church. And the way that Paul creates that equation is to say Christ gave himself, sacrificed himself for the sake of his church, his bride. And then he used that as the example to say, now you husbands, you love your wives, sacrifice for your wives, care for your wives, because Christ is doing that for you. One more example. 2 Corinthians 11, just verse 2, Paul finally says, For I am jealous over you, writing to the church there at Corinth, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you. I have engaged you. I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Wedding language. Wedding language just permeates the New Testament when describing the relationship between Christ and his church. And even Paul could say, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. And the reason that he said that to the church at Corinth was because they thought that it could be Christ and whatever other gods they were worshiping at the time. Remember that Corinth was full of idols full of temples to foreign gods. And he was saying, no, if you belong to Christ, it's exclusive. You know, the way marriage is supposed to be. If you belong to Christ, then he is your bridegroom. You are ultimately going to be with him eternally, and therefore your devotion, your love, has to be exclusively toward him. It can't be Christ and this other stuff. It can't be Christ And the law. It can't be Christ and my collection of good works, which Isaiah tells us are filthy rags. It can't be Christ and anything else. Christ is exclusive. Okay, a minute ago I picked on Micah, now I'm going to pick on April. So, April, how many husbands you got? Just the one. Yeah, and we're all sorry. But... (laughs) (laughs) That was very unkind of me, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exclusively Micah. Would Micah be okay with it if you said, yeah, you're my husband, but there's also this guy. He's going to go, well, no, you're my wife. That's exclusive. That's singular. That's just the two of you. That's what Paul is arguing here to the church at Corinth. It can't be Christ and something else, or someone else, or some other god, or some other religion, or something in you, or something in the law, or something. It can't be Christ plus something. Christ is exclusive. Salvation is Christ plus nothing. Because he is fully sufficient. He is fully effective as a savior. And so the more that you trust him, 
The more that you have faith in his finished work, the more that you follow him, the more you demonstrate your chastity to him as your bridegroom, as the one you're going to be with through all eternity. And the more you show that chastity, Paul could say that makes you a chaste virgin to Christ. Because the language in the Old Testament of Israel following foreign gods, the language that God chooses to use is adultery. And so the church that is exclusively Christ is a chaste virgin. See the difference? Mm -hmm. Paul used the language of marriage and wedding again in order to say that we are exclusively Christ. And he won't share us. He is jealous over us. Won't share us with anyone else. That 40 minutes was all introduction. I think you know the rule. Revelation 19, turn there. Everything that we have read so far in the New Testament is looking forward. Even Paul said, I betrothed you. But the marriage hasn't happened yet. To this very moment, even as I'm standing here today speaking, that marriage has not happened yet. We are anticipating that marriage. We are anticipating our bridegroom coming to get us, taking us to his father's house, where he has prepared these many dwellings, so that where he is, we can also be. That is what is being described here in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation starting at verse 7, but I'm going to start reading at verse 1 just to build up speed so we can remember what we ended on last week. And then there is the language of people being called to a wedding feast. That's why I began this morning with Jesus talking out of the book of Matthew, and Jesus talked about a king who put together a wedding feast and called people to the wedding That is culminating here in Revelation 19, and it is absolutely fabulous, beautiful language. Now, chapter 19, verse 1, I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, but I'm going to emphasize it one more time. Just plant it in your brain, tattoo it to your memory, because it's going to become really important at the end of chapter 19. Notice that John uses the language one more time, After these things. And he has been joining together everything before that with chi, the Greek word for and, and this, and this, and this. And after these things, there was this, and this, and this. In fact, if you just look back at the end of chapter 18, you'll notice that verse 21 starts, and a strong. Verse 22, and the sound. Verse 23, and the light. Verse 24, and in her was found. He's building sequence. And that's really important to hold on to when we get to chapter 20. So I'm just going to emphasize that little theological nugget, and you can just hold on to that for a couple weeks. After these things I heard, as it were, A loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Do you remember what that means? Praise Yah. Praise Yah. Praise Yah. And why is it that she was the only one who knew that? (laughs) It is praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. 
Glory to him, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I can't help it. Who does salvation belong to? Our God. Our God. Not to you, not to your choice, not to your decision. Salvation belongs to our God. And glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Anybody in this room ever reigned over anything? Don't raise your hand because you never have. Most of this life you've been reacting to what life throws at you. It would be nice if maybe once in a while we could get out ahead of something. (laughs) Maybe something that happened we saw coming. What we don't do is reign because to reign you have to be the sovereign. The word reign is right in the word sovereign. He is the king of kings. Therefore, he reigns over all kings. And all the power is his. The salvation and all the glory is his. And all of heaven is shouting and singing about the glory of our God and crying hallelujah for the Lord our God, the all Mighty, I know I keep saying this, but I got to say it one more time. If he has all the might, if he has all the power, how much do you have? None. There'd be none. That'd be, I got this from the back of the room. Well done, you. Just none. So if you have no power and it's up to you to get yourself saved, can you do it? No. You got no power. And we just read salvation belongs to God. But isn't it good to know that the one who has all the power, who has all the authority, who has all the might, who is sitting on his throne doing whatever seems good to him, if he's the one who saved you, oh my goodness, are you saved? Because the Almighty saved you. And if you know that the Almighty saved you, you can join this chorus. You'll be shouting hallelujah along with the rest of them. And you'll be shouting, you know what? Our God is salvation. Our God who has all the power, he saved a wretch like me. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. I read all that so that you could see that that is the context of verse 7. Let us, same group of people now speaking, let us rejoice and be glad 
and give glory to God, the Almighty, the one who reigns. And why are they rejoicing? And why are they so glad? And why are they giving glory to God? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Finally. We've been hearing marriage language for 2,000 years. The New Testament is just chock full of all this marriage language, but it's always looking forward to the marriage. When the actual marriage supper happens, the consummation, the church together with their husband, to be together eternally, never to be separated from their Lord, yeah, glory, yeah, hallelujah, yeah, praise God, let us rejoice and let us be glad. I think the word glad there is a bit of an understatement. We're going to be delirious. We're going to be out of our minds. We're going to be so excessively happy because finally the marriage has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Okay, in what way was she made ready? Because if you stop right there, it almost sounds like, okay, in order to be at the marriage feast, you have to do something. You have to make yourself ready. You have to be prepared. Okay, well, any wedding, the bride typically does prepare herself before the wedding. Even in modern weddings, one of the things that the bride does is put on a wedding dress, put on clothing appropriate for a wedding. Well, that is exactly what verse 8 says. This is how the bride prepares herself. This is how she gets herself ready for the marriage. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. It's not her fine linen. It was given to her. And now that fine linen is going to be defined for us. It is bright and clean, which, by the way, is the opposite of our filth and our dirt and our depravity and our sinfulness. And yet we are given fine linen, bright and clean, pure, for that fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I will point out that the phrase righteous acts is a single Greek word, and that single Greek word refers to ordinances or requirements, making a judgment or a decision, but what it means at its core is justification. In other words, we get to wear purity, which is just mind-boggling, because I know me, and I know Tom. Mostly I know Tom, but I, I know me, and I get to be clothed in purity, clean and white, which is identified as the justification and imputed righteousness of the saints of God who he chose to begin with. Does it get better than that? No. Does the gospel get more gospely than that? I mean, that's about as gospel-y as I got for you this morning. You get to stand before God, and he's not going to bring up your sin because Christ already paid for it. Instead, he's going to marry you to Christ, and he's the king, and he's going to give you the appropriate righteousness and purity to allow you to be married to his son, and he does it all. What do you bring? 
well, all your you-ness. You-ness, that's a new word I just made up. Just all, everything that is you, all the corruption that is you. And he imputes to you the righteousness that Christ accomplished, making you clean and pure, for the fine linen is the justification, the righteousness of the saints. And so he, the angel, said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I wish there was a word that meant just out of your mind with delirium and joy. More letters. letters. (laughs) But blessed, truly blessed, infused with the kindness and the grace of God, spiritually prosperous are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now do you see why Jesus would tell the parable where he said the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a marriage supper. And then he invited people. He invited the people who were originally called. That'd be Israel. They didn't come. And in fact, they ended up killing the prophets God sent to them. And so the king says, go out and find the dregs of the earth. Because I'm having a banquet either way. Here it is described as, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And remember Jesus' example that he said, if there were a gate crasher who doesn't have the appropriate clothing, here's the appropriate clothing. You're given that clean and white linen, that purity. You're given that from God. So don't think that you're going to crash the wedding supper of the lamb because you don't have the right clothing. And Jesus said, if the king finds somebody like that, he casts him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if you don't have the purity, the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account, and you think you're going to stand before God in all the Eunice that you bring to the party, just you and your filthy rags, well, then he's going to cast you out. And he said, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The point being, you got to be invited. You don't get to just decide for yourself you're going. God has to invite you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to me, for anybody who wants to argue about what I've said this morning, for anybody who thinks, no, 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 it has to be about me. (laughs) No, I did some stuff too. It's Christ and my good works. For anybody who thinks any other theology than what's described in the Bible, the angel then says, and these are the true words of God. So you don't really have an argument with me. You have an argument with an angel of God. Take it up with him. He can probably out-debate you all day long. Me, I'm tired. I need a nap. Go argue with somebody else. These are the true words of God. And John, he falls down at the feet of the angel to worship him. And that angel said to him, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours 
and your brethren. And who are the brethren? He defines them as those who hold the testimony of Jesus. And then he gives the clear directive, worship God. Even angels know better than to accept worship. They know that the worship belongs to Christ and God exclusively. I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus. Man, I like this one. You know, I I teach prophecy. I've been teaching prophecy for a long time. I'm not afraid to teach prophecy. And some of my preaching brethren and some of my online critics don't like that I'm comfortable teaching prophecy and that I'm willing to take a stand on prophecy But the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Says it right there. The testimony, which, by the way, that word is marturia. It's the same word from which we get martyr or proof, evidence of who Jesus is. The angel of the Lord is the one who says these are the true words of God. And, oh, yeah, the proof of Jesus is his prophecy. Pretty amazing. That's, by the way, why I teach prophecy. Because you can look at the prophecies of the Bible that have already come true, and you see that God has an excellent record going. And that builds up your faith. That builds up your confidence. That will convince you that this is the very word of God because there's no other literature on the planet that does what this book can do. And then right in the book, it tells you That the proof of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, is the fact that it contains prophecy. I love this prophecy stuff. Because I love the Jesus of the prophecies in this book. All right, I'm nearly done. I just want to read this next section because it is vital. Verse 11. I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. This is the return of Jesus coming back to the planet in order to establish his kingdom, set up his throne, rule with a rod of iron. When does that happen? After the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? Right. This is why it's so important to see that John is setting up sequences. After the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's at the marriage supper of the Lamb? The saints, the church. Okay, so if we are already at the marriage supper of the Lamb, before Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, then that proves that the church has to be gone off the planet before he comes back. Is that plain enough? Is that clear enough? But look at how he comes back. He who sat upon that white horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. Now, not just Stephanos, not just victor's crowns. I mean, king's crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, notice how they are described, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are those? Those are the people who have already been at the wedding supper. Those are the ones who have been at the marriage supper of the Lamb where they received white robes, white linen, clean and pure. The exact same language is used in verse 14. The armies, the people that are with him in his return are the very ones who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's coming back to establish his kingdom And he's bringing us with him. Look, blessed are those who have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Not only do we get to spend eternity with him, we get to be here on the planet celebrating the fact that the Christ of prophecy is finally accomplishing everything this book said he was going to accomplish. And we're going to celebrate it. And we're going to shout hallelujah and glory to the Lamb. We collectively are the support team for Christ when he comes back and finally does all the stuff that we've been waiting for 2,000 years for him to do. The culmination of all Christianity is finally getting to be with our husband, finally being married to him, and he is the faithful and the true husband. So hang on to that. Remember that. Remember, it ain't over. Whatever you're going through right now in life, whatever difficulties, problems you have here on planet Earth, it ain't over. He's going to come and get you, and he's going to give you a white robe, pure righteousness of saints. And he's going to take you to the home that he has prepared for you in his father's house. Those are the promises that he left us Those are the promises that he has to fulfill because the proof of Jesus Christ is the prophecies that he gave us. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.